0: That's not fair, said Bernadette. I remember our Bible study group at uni, Bernadette. Uh, she grew up as a committed Catholic, going to Mass each week, confession sometimes. And we reach this verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And I explained to the group that what you needed to be made right with God was to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you need. That's all you need. And Bernadette said, that's not fair. That's like having a free ticket to ride the bus, she insisted. And I said, that's right. A free ticket for us that Jesus pays the price for. On a number of occasions, now I've visited people on their deathbed, in nursing homes, in hospitals, days if not hours from death. I've read the Bible with them, I've prayed with them, and each time it has always been my hope that they would cry out to Jesus because I know that if they trust him now, regardless of the lives they have led, they will be with him in heaven in the life to come. And I mean, there's a precedent for this in the Bible, isn't there? In the Gospel of Luke, There's a criminal hanging next to Jesus, and you're not a good guy if you are being crucified, and this criminal makes this request to Jesus. Verse 42, Luke 23, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Have a listen to what the Apostle Paul said to, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, what Lynn just read out. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is the heart of being a Christian. You're not saved because you're a good person, because the Bible clearly says we are not good people. We're people who have sinned against God. And so the only way to be accepted by God is by God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's good. And then tonight, tonight we we have the Apostle James saying something that seems completely different to what the Apostle Paul says. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James seems to be saying that faith itself is not enough for God. You also need works in order to be saved. Well, well, which is it? Is it faith, faith alone, or or is it faith and works? Martin Luther was a giant of church history and world history, Luther was one of the great reformers of the church in the 1500s, and at the time it was widely taught in the Catholic Church that you could buy your way into heaven. Luther rightly reminded people to come back to the Bible, that it's by grace, through faith alone, that we're saved. We're justified by faith, by trusting in Jesus, not our good works. You can't bribe God to get into heaven. And so the great Martin Luther called the epistle of James an epistle of straw. He questioned its authority because of this passage we're looking at tonight. Well, what are we to think? Is it faith or is it faith and works? Is this an example of one part of the Bible contradicting another part of the Bible as people accuse us of? Let's ask God for his help now. Gracious Father, thank you that you have given us your word to make us wise for salvation. Please teach each one of our hearts and minds now, and please use me to speak your words faithfully. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to look at three things that James says in this passage. Firstly, faith without deeds is dead. Secondly, faith and deeds cannot be separated. And thirdly, faith is demonstrated by deeds. Well, firstly, faith without deeds is dead. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Uh, James is asking a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer. He's, He's making a point. There is no such thing as genuine faith in Christ without deeds because such a faith cannot save you. And James then goes on to give two very grim examples of what faith without deeds looks like. The first is in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And last week, when Scott was preaching, we saw that James was addressing the issue of favoritism in the church. People in the church were favoring the rich over the poor. And in this passage, it suggests they were going one step further. They were neglecting their responsibility to care for their poorer brothers and sisters in Christ. They see genuine need in front of their eyes. They even acknowledge that need, but they do nothing about it. You see, you can believe in Jesus. You can seem caring and considerate. You can be filled with all sorts of good intention. And according to James, your faith can still be dead. It's it's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? It's not as if this person is being mean and nasty. He's wishing His poorer or brother or sister, well, it's well-intentioned. After all, isn't it the thought that counts, we say? And James says, no, it isn't. This is dead faith, verse 17. One of the most uncomfortable emails I receive every week is from the Barnabas Fund. This is an organisation that helps Christians like me, rich, comfortable, well-fed Christians who have never suffered for the gospel. And Barnabas Fund wants me to pray for and to give money to help my poorer brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering persecution and often poverty because of their persecution. Uh, This is a screenshot of last week's email reminding me of the nine years that Asiya Bibi has been suffering in prison in Pakistan just because she trusts in Jesus as her Lord and Saviour. Barnabas Fund has been helping her family, and, and there's this big red button in that email that says, Donate Now. And a bit further down, it says $36 is all it takes to help one Pakistani family for one month. That's what I drink in coffee and eat in lunch in a week. And, and I haven't yet unsubscribed from the Barnabas Fund newsletter because each week it's like a test of whether my faith is real or whether it is just full of good intentions. Go well, Asya Bibi. Secondly, James says that faith and deeds cannot be separated. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now James isn't saying that it's up to a person to choose faith or deeds. He's saying the opposite. The two cannot be separated. Uh, Faith isn't just a mental agreement. No, faith is not just a, a true belief about God. Oh, yes, I believe in God and Jesus. No, faith is a trust in God, a trust in Jesus that must result in deeds. Real faith shows itself in real deeds. And to show this, James uses the example of demons in verse 19. You can believe the right things about God. But that doesn't mean you have real faith. The Israelites believe that there is only one God. The Christians, James is writing to, believe that there's one God. But the thing is, even the demons believe that there's only one God. The demons have great theology, but they don't respond to God with trust and obedience. They don't do acts of kindness and love. Their response is wrong, even though they shudder. And what James is saying here is it takes more than just having the right doctrine. It takes more than just having the right theology about God. It takes the right response because faith and deeds cannot be separated. There are churches in Melbourne that are very active in doing good. They campaign for children in detention centres. They'll advocate for the inequality between Aboriginal Australia and the rest of Australia. They'll run soup kitchens for the homeless. But many of these churches have abandoned the truth of the Bible. They will deny that there's only one God. They will deny that Jesus is the only mediator between us and God. And James would say that these churches think they can have deeds without faith. And they're wrong. There are other churches in Melbourne, churches like this one, that face the danger that James is talking about. Churches that believe all the right things from the Bible, but are at risk of not doing anything with it. What I call... Wine-tasting churches. You know what wine-tasters do, don't you? Take a glass of wine, they slosh it around, they swish it, they smell it, they sip it. They take the flavor on their palates. They slosh it around their mouths even. And then you know what they do? They spit it out. And then they judge it. From time to time, I find myself listening to God, listening to his word like a wine-taster. What did you think of the sermon, Emma will ask me. Oh, yes, I I thought it needed to get to Jesus a bit sooner. The analogies were interesting, but lacking a bit of power. The use of the passage was solid, but not spectacular. I'd give it a seven and a half. And what Emma's probably asking me is, what are you going to do with it? And so instead of drinking in God's word, I hear it and I spit it out and I judge it. Rather than letting God's word judge me, convict me, change me. James warns us, doesn't he? Don't be just a hearer of God's word, do it. That is the danger for a church like ours because consistently what I hear people say when they come to this church, it is for the Bible teaching. And don't get me wrong, being a church that teaches the Bible faithfully is great. But James says it's not enough. If that Bible teaching does not make you more loving more compassionate, more responsive to the needs of those around you, then your theology is as good as that of the demons. Faith and deeds go hand in hand. Thirdly, faith is demonstrated in deeds. And James gives us two real models of what it means to have a faith that's alive. Verse 20, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And the first example is the heavyweight example for James' Jewish readers. Abraham, their ancestor, their father of faith. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that he would have as many descendants as the stars. And at the time, Abraham was old and childless. But Abraham believed God and God declared him righteous And by Genesis 22, that faith is tested and proven true when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac on that altar. And Abraham was willing to do it. He demonstrated his faith with deeds. It it wasn't just Abraham's mental belief that God is true to his word. Abraham had to demonstrate that he really trusted God's word, and he did. And here's another example of faith demonstrated by deeds. Rahab, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, for the Jews, Rahab would have been a lightweight example Rahab, a a pagan prostitute who helped to hide the Israelite spies when they came to Jericho. And I think James is trying to shock his readers here because he's saying that even Rahab showed her faith in deeds. You know, God didn't speak directly to Rahab like he did with Abraham, but Rahab knew that God's army was going to destroy Jericho and Rahab threw her lot in with God and his people, even to the point of lying to her own people in order to help the Israelites. Rahab had faith demonstrated in deeds. And so James is saying you've got Abraham on one hand, you've got Rahab on the other, and everyone sits in between. This applies to everyone, including us. If you have faith in Jesus, you must demonstrate your faith by deeds. How does James... What he says here about deeds, compare with what the other apostles say about deeds. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, yes, yes, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But look at verse 10. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saved by grace to do good works. Both are important. Here's Paul again in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Here again, Paul, Titus chapter 3 verse 7. Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I hope you're getting the picture. The Apostle Paul doesn't disagree with the Apostle James. They both knew each other. They both recognized each other's apostleship, but they wrote to different people. Paul wrote to nervous Gentiles, non-Jews, who didn't know if they had to follow the Old Testament laws and traditions to be saved by Jesus. And James is writing to overconfident Jews who were relying on their heritage. Both agree, though, that faith and deeds must go together. The Bible doesn't contradict You see, Paul and James, I think, are using the word justified in two different ways. Paul is saying that we are justified, we're made right with God through faith. It's legal language. It's only through trusting in the great gift of Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be declared right with God. And and James is saying that we are justified or we're proven right by our works. In James 2, verse 24, uh, what we do demonstrates how real our faith is. And it makes sense. If we're in a right relationship with God, we will want to do the good that God desires for us to do. Paul and James do not disagree. Was Luther right in questioning the authority of the epistle of James? No, he wasn't. In fact, there's a saying that comes from the Reformation that I think is a great summary of what Paul and James are saying. It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's faith alone that saves. Trusting in Jesus Christ, only in his sacrifice on the cross, that's the only thing that deals with the cost of our sin against God. But if you have that type of faith, genuine faith, it will never be alone because it will be accompanied by a desire to please Jesus, doing all sorts of good, driven by the love of Jesus. Just one question of application tonight. Is your faith dead or is it alive? Is your faith dead or is it alive? Uh, Each morning, when I used to go to uni, I would park my car at one end of Melbourne Cemetery and I would walk through the cemetery to get to my classes at Melbourne Uni. Uh, One gravestone stood out to me from all the others. I took a photo of it. It is a statue of a woman clinging desperately to the cross. And on the cross are the words, Rock of Ages... It's one of the songs we sing here at this church. Let me read to you one of the verses. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And when I look at that gravestone and see the woman clinging to the cross, I see how this person died. They died well. They died with a living faith, throwing themselves on the mercy of God shown in Christ Jesus on his cross. The cross of Christ teaches us how to die well. But it also teaches us how to live well. Listen to the Apostle John speaking about the cross of Christ, 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. John sounds like James, doesn't he? Faith must be demonstrated by deeds. How can you look at the cross of Christ? How can you see the practical love of Jesus for you and not be compelled to love others like that? That's what John is saying. Jesus, though he was rich beyond imagination, became poor for us. So how can you possibly say that you believe in Jesus and not be compelled to care for the needs of those around you? John asks the hard question, if you say you know the love of Jesus, but do not show the love of Jesus, are you a real Christian? Is your faith dead or alive? Yes, you should cling to the cross alone, but here is the other side of the cross, the side that demands a response. Here are the lyrics of another song we sing in this church, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, That were an offering far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. The love of Christ demands the use of my time. The love of Christ demands the use of my money. The love of Christ demands the use of my possessions. The love of Christ demands the use of my gifts. Faith has to be shown in deeds of love. And when you understand the love of Jesus for you, When you understand what it took to deal with your sin, your heart will will melt with compassion and generosity and joy in service. You see, a dead faith is a faith that is preoccupied with self. Too, Too busy calculating petrol money rather than driving someone to the airport. Too much time to talk to listen to your friend with depression. It's going to blow my budget to cook that meal for that person in need. If I welcome those people into my house, it will mess up my house. A dead faith has no compassion. Those children in detention should blame their parents for being there. A dead faith has all the best intentions in the world. Once I've graduated, once I've bought a house, once I've married, once my kids are older, well, then I will have more time to give to Jesus and money. A faith that is alive is not concerned with self, but is consumed with serving Christ and others. Uh, I was working on the Bundy website this week. I googled Bundura Presbyterian and I I came up with an article in the National Library of Australia. And it turns out we're not the first Bundura Presbyterian. This is an article. uh, It's an obituary, in fact, an obituary of a lady, Mary Bruce. Uh, This article is dated between 1907 and 1922. Uh, Bandura Presbyterian was the Janefield Presbyterian Church who used to meet further up Plenty Road at what is now the Macedonian Orthodox Church. And uh, the Reverend Bruce writes this obituary about his sister Mary. Uh, He reads two passages of Scripture that speak of what he thought of her. Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character, even though it seems his sister Never got married or had kids. He also read Luke ten forty two about Mary, who did the best thing he said, and that was to listen to Jesus, unlike his sis, her sister Martha. And as I read this obituary, I want you to think about what a life lived in devotion to Jesus looks like. A life that is not consumed with traveling traveling the world and having lots of experiences, amassing great wealth, but a life that is lived in the ordinary goodness of loving and serving others. Learn from a former member of Bandura Presbyterian. Let me read this to you. His sister, the Reverend Bruce said, lived a beautiful ministry of unselfishness and love. It was a ministry of usefulness and help. Her joy was to assist others and efface herself. Unassuming, gentle and a patient, quite unconsciously to herself, she glorified her master in the daily round and common tasks of life. An entire absence of the sound that shallow women make. Transparent in sincerity and simplicity, she shrank from the public gaze and the world's rude stare. She cared for none of these, yet she was always grateful for every little kindness. Gratitude filled a large place in her heart Sensitive to wrongs of any kind, she preserved the quiet spirit that ever conquers. And charity towards all was the covering of her soul. She loved nature and nature returned her love. She saw the gleam of goodness all around in sun and stars and sea. Flowers were God's thoughts to her. And the kindly things that women love were gladsome gifts. She was great in the things that matter. Although she knew it not in goodness, purity, and truth, she was rich, rich in the qualities that go to make up perfect womanhood, and well combined in her was a wise common sense that made for quiet humor and quaint remarks, oft times easing the strain of things. She loved her church, and in Sunday school, Bible class, Presbyterian Women's Mission Union... And the ladies' guild, she found a happy work. The Sunday school students were very dear to her. And during the absence of her brother as a chaplain, it was wonderful how she kept matters going. None heard her complaining. It was not in her nature. It is not for me to speak here of what my sister was in her home. That is too sacred. Suffice it to say that she was all that one could wish a woman to be. An ideal that any woman might envy. She was the best of sisters that one could ever wish a woman to be. One of the noblest women I ever met, yet she knew it not. This is high praise, but not too high. And the secret of it all, in early years, Mary Bruce had chosen the one thing needful, the good part, to listen to Jesus. And it was not taken from her. And so across the years, the two Marys link hand to hand. Her end was peace. Just as another day began to break in the east, one of God's angels came down, and so all peacefully and calm, she passed away to God's eternal home. She lived in radiant bliss, more lasting than monument of brass or marble is the memory of her beautiful life. A life made perfect in love, and it will be a hope An inspiration to us all, her gentle spirit lives on in all the work she loved so well and blessed are those to whom it is given to carry on her work. Faith must be demonstrated by deeds. That is what it means to live well. And to die well. Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Father, you know our hearts. So often we're really good at being theoretical Christians, lots of good intentions, lots of good theology. And we confess we fall short of doing the good that you've given us to do. Gracious Father, please draw us back to the cross of Christ that we would see how he laid down his life for us. That we would love like him. Help us to learn from The saints who have gone before us, like Mary Bruce, help us, Father, to listen to Jesus and to do his good. We pray in his name. Amen.